1616, a tragic history began. Sea captain and colonist George Bargrave brought the first enslaved person to the shores of Bermuda, along with an indigenous person, for the sake of pearl diving. This event preceded the over 200 years of bondage on the island for Afro-Bermudians, which ended only with emancipation in 1834. Freedom didn't just come, however, from the hands of the British. Captured Africans had to fight for it. One such fighter was Mary Prince, a whistleblower on the horrors of slavery. Circa the year 1788, Mary Prince was born in the Bermudian parish of Devonshire at Brackish Pond. She would have joined thousands of other enslaved people into a life of captivity at the hands of brutish slave owners. She was bought as an infant alongside her mother by Captain George Darrell, who gave the mother and child to his granddaughter as a gift. Throughout her life, Prince had five different slave owners and was separated from her family at an early age. Despite such a devastating blow to her rights as a person, Prince soon after began to resist the systems of slavery. She ran away to her mom one year after being sold to a different household. Unfortunately, she was sold to slavers again and again, being forced to work in the salt industry of Grand Turks Island, then Cedar Hill, back in Bermuda, before being sold off again and hired as a domestic for the Woods family in Antigua. It was in Antigua that Mary Prince became baptized and then started attending the Spring Gardens Moravian Church, where she learned how to read and write through missionaries. The oral traditions of storytelling in the Moravian Church would likely influence Prince's ability to powerfully narrate her autobiography later on. The woods soon take her to London, where she technically becomes a free woman at the age of 20, as Britain did not legalize slavery on its own land. There, with the help of some friendly people, Prince is able to earn a living, be fed and housed. Soon after, she meets lawyer Thomas Pringle, who assisted her unsuccessfully in the fight for her freedom. Although Pringle was unable to successfully petition for Prince to be manumitted, the lawyer would later form part of a writing team that would have changed her life. Through Pringle, Mary meets abolitionist Susanna Strickland and decided to tell the truth of what it's like living as an enslaved person in the transatlantic slave trade. Joseph Phillips, an abolitionist pamphleteer who was jailed in Antigua for his belief, helped Pringle on the part of the narrative based on that island. He knew Prince and one of her former owners, John Adams Wood Jr., from his time spent in Antigua, and that would give him invaluable insight. Thomas Pringle, who was also a secretary of the London's Anti-Slavery Society, then edited the manuscript compiled by Susanna for publishing. He fact-checked the narrative written with Mary Prince, corrected any grammatical errors, and translated any phrases in Creole that would impede readers unfamiliar with the local Bermudian dialect. Her story, initially titled The History of Mary Prince, was released in February of 1831 and became the first slave narrative by an enslaved woman published in the United Kingdom. It was so popular that it was reprinted two other times, being sold out each time. The book had a profound impact on the abolitionist movement in Britain and abroad. It caused quite a stir in pro-slavery circles as well, with James McQueen writing a critique of the narrative that also attempted to malign Prince's character. Prince also had to testify in two libel cases concerning the book. One case actually brought forth by Pringle against McQueen for his written criticism, and another by Mary Prince's former slave owner John Wood Jr., Despite these legal challenges, the history of Mary Prince went on to transform the literary world of the anti-slavery movement.
The abolition of slavery was enacted in the colonies just two years after the book's release. Prince's bravery allowed Afro-Caribbean people one of the first documentations of their centuries-long history of black resistance, which is still celebrated today by its descendants, as evidenced by the countless black history events of the past preserved in the black cultural archives. In 2020, Bermudians renamed both a former holiday and a park in Devonshire, Mary Prince's hometown, after her, to celebrate the author's achievements. In creating her autobiography, Mary Prince was a trailblazer in the lineage of black women storytellers, journalists, and writers who spoke unwavering truth to power. And today's guest continues in Prince's footsteps in the education of the general public on black histories. Dr. Aisha Johnston, historian, educator, and learning and engagement manager here at Black Cultural Archives, makes it her mission to educate those of all ages, not only on the experience of Afro-Caribbean people in the UK, but the presence of Black Britons as far back as 200 AD. In today's episode, we discuss her career journey, her passion for Black people to know our history, and the relevance of history today. So my work here at Black Cultural Archives is, as you said, mostly um, facilitating school workshops, um, classes come with their teachers. We have university seminars as well. That's a mixture of uh, predominantly UK and US universities. Mm -hmm. Occasionally we get groups from uh, Netherlands or Germany, but mostly it's Britain and UK at the moment. We hope to spread out to become truly global organization in that respect. And we also um, facilitate engagement for staff groups. So it could be, for example, organizations that have black staff networks and during Black History Month, they may get a budget to put on talks. Mm. So either they come here or we go to them. And sometimes it's the, the managers or the directors who come or across the organization. And the work I do here is also around more general public engagement. So family activities, um, some partly exhibition, not in entirely exhibition work, Mm. but there's an element of that in it as well. Programming, uh, performance, it's a mixed bag, really. Wow, many, many hats. (laughs) Um, So your career has a strong focus on history, and I'm wondering where your intrigue for history first began. What sparked it? It's been a very convoluted journey. So um, (laughs) let me go back to school. (laughs) I mean, I always loved history, probably because I always loved stories. Um, I was always reading fiction, any any kind of fiction. I loved it, particularly historical fiction. I think because it just take, took me back to past times. I didn't really want to be reading anything contemporary because that doesn't really take you out of who you are, the situation mm-hmm. you're in. So reading a lot of historical novels, to me, history at school was just an extension of that. Um, I have no personal connection to the Tudors and Henry VIII <laughs> and his wives and all of that kind of thing. I just saw it as, wow, crazy stories. <laughs> and so coming up to when we had to select our GCSEs, um, you had to select a certain number of sciences, a certain number of humanities, and I had to drop history. And I was absolutely devastated. Mm-hmm. And I begged my parents, please, I don't want to drop history. My dad said, you need to do three sciences. It's more important. (laughs) It's going to get you, you know, a better career path. And so I spent the first GCSE term saying to my friends who are doing history, can I borrow your textbook? And then maybe I can learn enough and actually sit the GCSE at the end. Of course, that was never going to happen. Um, But I dug my heels in and I said to my dad, I'm not dropping Latin, not because I had a strong attachment to the classics, particularly or Latin, but it was a form, looking back on it, it's mm. a form of history and historical engagement. 
And so for A-level, never mind the, the, the sciences, I got a D in physics, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so for A-level, I did classical civilization, okay, it's history, history of art, English literature, and the English literature was all historical. So that was how I kind of stayed in the history right. field. But I didn't get into history as a career until much later, I had a long and varied career path. It was only as, a, as, as an adult returning to, to study that I then said, because people who knew me saw me as a historian, even though I wasn't, I had absolutely no <laughs> historical credentials whatsoever, but I was a writer, so I wrote historical fiction. Mm. And because of that, I researched. I had to go to the National Archives, um, looking at these archival documents to get that authenticity into my writing. And I was working freelance. I was doing workshops for people on how to research your family heritage, um, all wow. kinds of different things. And I said, really, I need something. on. If I'm going to continue freelance, I need something on my CV to show for it, that show mm -hmm. that I am a historian. So then I went and did a, a master's in historical research at Birkbeck, and took loads and loads of extensions before. It was meant to be one year. I was going to do it in a year. Did all the coursework in a year. Dissertation took me another two to three years. Because to be fair, I was, no, it wasn't about a year or two. I was pregnant at the time with my mm. son. Couldn't focus on anything. Fair but enough. as it happened, and because I'm a very last minute person, I'm mm. very kind of scatty. The last extension they gave me was the end of 20... I started this 2010, 2011. They said the final extension would be December 2014. And I remember it was the 31st of December 2014 at quarter to midnight. I was sitting there typing up the last pages of the dissertation. <laughs> but had that not happened, because as it happened, there was then in January uh, a scholarship offered to do a PhD in history okay. in the areas that I was um, familiar with. So as the things often happen fortuitously, mm -hmm. had I not taken that extension and finished when I did, I wouldn't then have considered doing a PhD in history. Mm -hmm. And had I not done the PhD in history, maybe I wouldn't have ended up here at Black Cultural Archives. So a lot of it hasn't been, I haven't had a clear path saying, I need to do this to get to that. And I think that's what I'd say to a lot of people who are looking at, at, at careers in the sector. Sometimes you're not quite sure where the end goal is. You, you just know vaguely you want to be in this sector, but you have to be open to the twists and turns that can happen and just accept that along the way. Wow, it's been a long journey. And that's something that strikes me about your career path is that it wasn't necessarily linear. And it seems like you kind of maintained this constant thirst for knowledge, always going back to learn more um, while also being an educator. Um, so... Did you expect your journey to look like this? I mean, you touched on the fact that you didn't. <laughs> um, but what lessons do you feel like you've learned throughout your journey that you maybe hadn't prepared yourself to learn when you were first starting out? I hadn't prepared myself for barriers, doors mm. that close in your face, injustices. I had no way. I wasn't equipped to deal with that mm. at all. So my first career was in publishing. So publishing was my first love before academia or like museum education, mm -hmm. but got into a situation where it was a situation of discrimination, whereby I didn't have the, the necessary the knowledge or the, or the ability or the confidence or the support to be able to push through mm -hmm. with that. So I kind of came out of that sector and then took a different turn. I kind of fell back on teaching in um, further education adult education where you could be more independent, mm. um, moving from place to place, didn't have to deal with so toxic staff kind of yeah. office environments. And then kind of then through that came back around to being in the sector I was interested in. So 
and so even then when I moved into further education, a similar thing happened. So mm-hmm. I think looking back on it, I, it's important not to feel isolated. You may feel like you're the only person in your organization facing these particular challenges, but it's really important to speak to other people, even if they're outside your organization and you think they can't influence what's happening to you. What you will come to realize is that what's happening to you is of a pattern. Mm-hmm. Similar things will be being experienced by people who, you know, of your color, of your, of your beliefs, your background. And they will, and then you'll have more of a sense of, of what you're facing and, and how to, to push through with it. Okay. It's interesting that you say you weren't expecting to face the discrimination or the challenges that kind of arose. Obviously, you are a black Muslim woman. And in the UK, I think that's an especially difficult identity to carry around. Um, So how have you navigated throughout your career the intersection between religion and race? And do you feel like in the different pies that you have your fingers in that there has been a space that's been cultivated for you to truly express your identity in a in a safe environment and in a supported environment? I'd have to say not really, because mm. when my career was starting out, Islamophobia wasn't a word. It right. wasn't something and it wasn't something that was covered by law either. But it existed. It did, but I didn't have the words for yeah, it. Right. And people around me who were perpetrating it, mm. didn't know what it was. They just didn't think they were doing anything wrong. Mm. Um, and I think even now within anti-racist spaces, Islamophobia is still something that's kind of a bit of the elephant in the room. I don't think it's well understood mm. at all. But on the other hand, I mean, a, a friend of mine said to me, you know, I've seen you go, your career move from one place to the other. You You get interviews, you get jobs. In a way, it hasn't... Like looking the way you do, I think you've done amazingly, <laughs> so mm. to speak. And I think here at Black Cultural Archives, it's definitely, at least as a black person, you can kind of relax, you can be yourself, mm. um, even as a Muslim. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, we're all very kind of open and relaxed here. We don't have, you know, entrenched views on, yeah. on matter. So yeah, I find this is this, I'd have, this is the most comfortable space I've worked in, I'd say. Mm. Wow. And do you think that? going forward in your career there there is there's obviously room for improvement but do you feel like you're seeing that improvement as you as you go on um and do you feel like this country generally speaking in the historical industry and the educational industry are moving towards a more accepting and welcoming place to different races and different religions specifically islam and specifically black black women i see it for races somewhat Mm -hmm. because of certain external pressures and incidents that have happened that have meant that race cannot be swept under the carpet Mm. any longer. Honestly, I don't really see it in terms of religion Islamophobia. I think it's something that people still think, oh, um, that's something else, that's something to do with beliefs, not really. Mm. Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, to be fair, going into some institutions, you see they've, they've made efforts to provide a space, for example. So knowing that if you want to increase the number of, say, Muslim visitors to your mm. organization, having a space for them to pray will help. It's yeah. not a statutory requirement, but it might make a difference to the amount of time that a Muslim person might decide to spend at your organization. Mm. I remember back as a student when I was thinking of which library do I want to study in for the day, I'd think, well, does that one have a prayer room? Mm. Or does that museum have a space? If not, maybe I won't go there. Maybe I'll go to this other one instead those are the realities if if organizations want to respond to that on a very basic level that will automatically make muslim people feel more welcome Mm. 
Um, and on kind of collaboration and allyship, um, which I assume has been a really big part of your career, especially um, the collaboration element, what role does community play in your career, if any? I know what you mean. I think the reason I find it hard to answer that question is because I have been largely alone. Mm. But I think there's two reasons for that. One, because a lot of the work I've been doing, I've been the only one doing that within a particular organisation, or it's been a group of people who've all been freelance and therefore quite sort of, we come together once in a while, but we're not working together. Mm. The other thing I think is because it's, this sector, like whether it's heritage or academia or museums or publishing, we know that it's very tiny numbers of, 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 of black people involved in this sector and mm. so therefore in terms of say family and relations it's not something that they really know about mm. so and most of my friends now still don't really know what I do <laughs> I said to a friend of mine a very close friend I said what what is my job she said oh are you some sort of research assistant and I said no but this is a close friend <laughs> I think a lot of people just, just don't get it because it's not such a clear-cut thing right. unless they themselves engage in heritage or engage in museums or engage in history mm. so I guess it has been a lonely path it hasn't I haven't felt all alone and sad or worries me it hasn't <laughs> felt like that because each place I've gone to I've met really interesting people mm. and here at BCA it's different it's a lot more of a stable um you know we have a stable core group of people around us in the staff and then we have our stakeholders we have the, the the community that regularly engages with us from Brixton and from the the black community mm. we also have academic uh, like universities that commonly engage with us we're beginning to see the same kind of schools coming back so i guess that's that's there's that sense of community yeah. building within my role and also because when i started at bca I was the only person in my department, so right. it still felt the same as what I'd always been doing in a way. But now I have an assistant, so mm -hmm. it feels like I'm starting to actually build something. And maybe the people who come after me in mm -hmm. this role will have that that kind of network already established that they can move into. That's wonderful. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so I suppose because you're the first in your department and just white generally your the work that you do isn't necessarily um it can't be boxed into any one type of industry or one category. What what changes or what improvements would you like to see in your field, however you define it? What changes and improvements would you like to see in the coming years? Well, one thing that my department's very focused on at the moment is curriculum reform. Mm. So we want to see schools engaging with black history because it's something that they understand is, is part of the curriculum because it's part of the history. Mm. This is not something that's only for black people or only for any segment of society. I want to see uh, black history embedded as a form of British history and therefore... The work that I'm doing now is to look at um, partly where do the existing histories that we have fit into the national curriculum, but mm. also how can the national curriculum be changed? Yeah. Are there areas where they haven't considered opening up, um, for example, like migration? That's a new GCSE mm. topic that wasn't there before. And under migration and power to the people, we can get a lot more of our stories in. But there are many other segments of the curriculum not just history is mm. art as well there's music there's english english language english literature i'd like to see all of these areas changing because mm. i think the change we want to see in society is going to begin with the with the with the children what are they taught from an early age and then as they grow up how does that affect these are the future leaders mm. obviously and i think a lot of the resistance we get now is because 
people who are in in charge now or running, making decisions, don't know what the issues are because they didn't learn about it. So mm. there's that sense of fear, that sense of, oh, no, we can't have that. That might lead to this. That might lead to that. When really it's only something positive that we're trying to build here. We're not trying to tear anything down. Yeah, we're trying to build. Mm. So that's the, the big change I would like to see. Where I'd like to try to enact within my role at BCA. Mm. Do you feel like the pushback that you've received in trying to normalize Black British history as part of the English school curriculum, um, do you think that that is something that comes from a place of ignorance or from a place of, do you think it's willful ignorance or blissful ignorance? Do you think that people are aware that there is Black British history to be explored within the curriculum and that this would be very valuable to a large proportion Mm. of the UK? Um, But there's pushback to it because it doesn't serve the kind of overarching system upon which this country was built? I think all of those things are true. Yeah. It, it so depends. Um, there are some people who see the value in it and they want to see it happen. But if they themselves are not from a black background, they might think as a teacher, oh, I can't teach that. Mm. I'm not equipped to teach that. Mm. Um, they might feel there's sensitivities around it. They might fear doing it wrong. On it, other hand you've got others that will use the excuse of a fear of doing it wrong to not do anything at all Um, and then yes I think there are there is a definite um, from certain circles a desire not to have it but Mm. that does come from fear it's the fear that if we open this box then the country is going to descend into chaos or something because we'll no longer have this glorious vision of Britain's past Mm. Um, I've seen this in conversations on forums where as soon as you start to talk about black history, people just say slavery. Mm. So they think that it's all about slavery and all about making people feel bad for slavery. One person in a forum was saying, I don't think that, I don't want my children to be made to feel guilty over slavery. Well, nobody had said anything about that. And mm. no one had, I don't think anyone has ever gone into a school and made little white children feel bad about <laughs> slavery. That just doesn't happen. <laughs> so it's partly foolishness. It's partly naivety. It's mm. partly a deliberate desire not to do it. But my role here, I'm always focusing on what what can happen. I'm a very optimistic person, and that's probably why the role suits me. So <laughs> I work with those that want to work with me. Mm. I don't actually have to go out and recruit schools. The schools are coming already, and we're already working at capacity. Mm. So those that we work with, we just try and work with them more strongly. Um, we spend a bit of time reaching out to other schools, but if they don't engage, well, we haven't that's a, that's what it is. I guess if they see other schools engaging and yeah. they see also from the local authority level and they see what kind of materials we're producing, what kind of lesson plans, then they might come mm. on board when they see it's actually working. Okay. And it's also to do with time as well. If we're thinking about the education sector, they haven't got time yeah. to be learning new things unless we hand it to them on a plate, which... Mm and on the kind of flip side of that so we've spoken about educators and kind of the role that they can play or curriculum setters and the role that they can play mm. in changing how black british history is spoken about in this country something that really struck me when i moved here though was the lack of knowledge within the black community about black british history um and still to this day i don't really know many people who know much about black british history beyond windrush so what do you think can be done within the community to encourage people to learn more about their history and to to let them know that they do have a history in this country that predates windrush 
It's so important. And, you know, I always do this little um, kind of a icebreaker when people come, when adults come for a workshop. I put up on the screen pictures of eight people mm. and I ask them to name the people. Everybody can name Martin Luther King mm. and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks. And then the others are British, like mm. British figures from around the time. And there's silence. Uh, ooh. And I say this just illustrates the fact that the whole education system to this day, when it comes to history, is always geared towards the US. Mm -hmm. And partly, I mean, as, as black people, for me as a child, that was a good thing in the sense that had it not been for that US black American history, I wouldn't have yeah. had anything at all. Mm. So it's a great, so I'm not trying to take away from that. But here at Black Cultural Archives, we are focused primarily 90% on the British experience. Mm. And so I think um, people, if people want to, can come to BCA, they can do that. Uh, one thing we, we are starting now is um, courses that adult, individual adults can book onto because we haven't really had that up until now. You've always had to be part of a group. Right. But if individuals can come and book on themselves, they That's can do great. that. But even like if, if, even if they don't come here, I think most of the major um, museums now have some aspect of black mm. history, which you can take just as a springboard for going and doing further research. I think we often hear phrases like hidden histories. Mm. Um, I don't think our hi histories are hidden at all. Everything is there if you just know where yeah. to look or you're interested in looking. I think that's where Black History Month has been a great thing. I mean, when I was a, as a younger person, first discovered Black History Month, I would go everywhere. I, I mean, I live in South London. I would go to Hackney. I'd go to <laughs> Halsden. Everywhere where there was anything on to do with black people, I found mm. it so exciting. Um, and all the libraries and everything, every, everything is there for us to just mm. to find out. The onus is on, is on us now. Um, and I think, yeah, for those of us who are already grown up, it's, it's a shame that we never learned that growing up. And yeah. I guess to some extent, if you don't know what you didn't learn, then how do you know? To learn it, to learn it yeah. or where to find it. Um, but just I'd want people to know that it's there. Mm. For every Malcolm X series, for every Rosa Parks, we have the equivalent figures in Britain mm. doing amazing work. And not only 20th century, but pre-20th century as well. There have been amazing black men and women who've done very inspirational work. Preach. It's very, very... Um... I think it's a bit it's a bit of a shame that um, the civil rights movement and just black British history has kind of been amalgamated with US history. And I know that like we've all fallen victim to it, myself included. Um, and we look to the US as this kind of cornerstone of black history um, and not acknowledging that the UK and other countries in Europe have their entirely separate and own history with that deserve as much recognition mm -hmm. and as much time and dedication. Um, going back to what you said earlier about where your love of history first came from. So you said that you enjoyed it because they were just stories to you and you had no, no personal connection to it. So where was the kind of turning point where your interest shifted towards something that is obviously very personal to you and that you have um, a very intrinsic connection to? That's a very good question because um, always when I traveled, I used to travel to places where you could see history. And that's partly mm. stemming from school. We used to go on school trips. We went to Rome, we went to Venice, places where you can see the history in the built environment. And that always used to spark my interest. I could mm. picture what, what it was like then. I am from a Jamaican background. We went to Jamaica when I was nine years old as a child, but didn't go again till I was an adult in my 20s, maybe yeah. even 30s. And I remember the f on that first trip, I remember at one point actually crying. Mm. I remember lying in bed crying because I felt I didn't have a connection 
to the country that I thought that I had. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see anything in the history. I couldn't see evidence of the history. I couldn't, I wasn't understood by Mm. the people there or even my own family. They've always thought I'm a bit eccentric, (laughs) crazy. But at some point, because I started to go every year, and at some point I ended up actually um, dragging people around because I just dragged them out of their comfort zones. I started to discover, I remember now actually, my dad had come back to England from a trip to Jamaica and gave me this booklet called Tales of Old Jamaica. This is one of those books you buy in the airport Mm. and it has 10 stories in it from Georgian times. One of them being, I don't know if you've heard of the White Witch of Rose Hall. Rose Hall is this Georgian house in Jamaica, was owned by a white woman in 18th century, supposed to have come from Haiti or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there are all these rumors about her that she was a witch, that she <laughs> she 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 had this torture chamber and she had affairs with slaves and she this and this and the other. Jeez. Six of one and a half a dozen of the other. I mean, when you visit the house, they'll tell you all kinds of nonsense. Mm. I don't know how much is true <laughs> or not, but reading that book, because I was always very interested in the 18th century as well, I started to realize, well, you know, this history is here. Mm. Um, and then if you go to places like Spanish Town, which was, you know, the old capital of Jamaica where the archives are still located, you can see the remnants of these buildings yeah. there. And these stories were stories that didn't only take place in the capital, but all around the country. Mm. So, for example, there were stories about Three Fingered Jack, who was who was a man who um, was kind of a bandit then, but he wasn't um, more of a Robin Hood kind of character. Right. And there was a place in the country where there's a little kind of stone commemorating him where I think he was finally captured. I said to my parents, I want to go there and see that stone. <laughs> And all over the country, I found there's links to very interesting things. Um, Mm. And a lot of the history is in downtown Kingston. So Kingston, obviously, back then was very small. It's spread out a lot. The downtown area is very run down and very neglected. The the Jamaicans I know, you wouldn't go there unless you had a reason to go there. So they were saying, what do you want to go to these places for? They're not nice. They want the more upmarket Mm -hmm. kind of places. I want to see the history. I want to see the old streets. And so... I said, drag them all down there to see this history. And then what was interesting, because back in the 1950s then, before, towards the end of the colonial era, Mm. downtown was very swanky. It was very smart. And I remember the elders I went with, it's the first, probably the first time they'd been downtown since maybe leaving Jamaica in the 60s. Right. And they were like, oh, wow, this is where Woolworths used to be. <laughs> My mom said, this is a shop. It had the first ever escalator in it. <laughs> oh, this is where we used to buy our school books from. And so I'm starting wow. to hear the spoken history, mm. the lived history of the people and starting to kind of tie that together with what I'd read in books and to realize that history isn't just what's in books mm. um, a long time ago. There's a lot that you learn from listening to people. And then I started to connect it to myself and my own personal history. Yeah. And it just went from there. I sort of became far less interested in European history, which is all I was ever taught at school. Mm. And then just far more interested in, in, in the Atlantic histories and the Caribbean. And yeah, that, that's where it's... And funnily enough, because, because of the personal interest, like family history and that sort of thing, that led me into more looking at history more academically. Mm. Um, it's something I'd say a lot of people are interested in family history and DNA, and I think you can use that as a springboard for connecting young black people to history. So it's not just that this thing happened a long time ago to some random people. If you find out that your granddad or great-granddad was born in 1865 in St. Mm. Jamaica, well, what was happening in 1865 right. in Jamaica? What could your granddad have been doing? How does that then lead to you being the person that you are to this day? Um, 
I mean, wow. me, I don't need history to be linked to the present for me to love it. That's just mm-hmm. me. That's just my own passion. But if it helps people to link it to the present and link it to their personal lives, mm-hmm. I'm all for that. Wow, that's really interesting what you just said about um, kind of placing our ancestors within their time. I think we speak about ancestry and our ancestors almost as if they didn't actually exist. And I'm, it really sparked thought with me right now. I've never really thought about the periods that my ancestors lived through. I didn't, I've never placed them in the real world. I've never placed them, you know, on the earth that I currently live on as well. Um, and it's interesting because I think that black history coming from the diaspora is so oral and it's not something that we necessarily speak about much um, that our history is more oral than it is written and so with that comes a responsibility to talk with uh, talk with each other and kind of communicate with each other Mm. and and pass down those stories so what what do you think that now living in kind of a disconnected era and I think there's quite a generational disconnect um, especially now living in the west and you know growing up in the 21st century what do you think the responsibility is for young black people in the UK, but also older black people in the UK to preserve the oral history that we all have? Or do you think that there are ways that we need to, do we need to change the way that we um, conserve this history? Should it go from oral to something else, maybe written? I think both. I think there are other ways to conserve history. What I would say to elders is, don't throw things away. <laughs> Don't everything you even an object mm. can tell so much about it. even things like telephones, the yeah. old kind of dog and bone telephone. This is something that young people just don't know what mm-hmm. that is. So I would say to all preserve the things in your house. And I also found with certainly with the older generation in my family and the people that I know, they think you're being nosy if mm. you're asking about their lives and what happened in the past. So I'd say for them to just be open to it (laughs) and the younger people just keep on pestering them, Mm. keep asking questions. Even when your granny says she don't remember, (laughs) yes, she does. Just ask her again on another Mm. day, ask her in a different ways. But you can't just obviously turn up at the door and just fire questions off at them. You have to develop those relationships again Mm. and sit with them and just let them talk about what they want to talk about. Because I remember uh, I used to sort of have a very fixed idea in my head. I'm going to speak to this elder because I want to find out this particular thing. Mm. Maybe they want to talk about something else that you never even thought of and the conversation can go in different ways. One thing that's great is we can record. You can record the voices. I just wish I'd recorded my great aunt. She was such a character. (laughs) Made everybody laugh. Um, But also I'd say to people, uh, um, as a piece of advice, don't always think that the written history is more authentic than the oral history. Mm -hmm. Because we do tend to be taught that, that that if you say something, then over time it's going to be changed or remembered differently. But the written should also be interrogated. And Mm -hmm. I say that because, for example... You have to think about who's written the document Mm. for a start. Why did they write it? If our histories are written by the colonial authorities, what kind of information have they captured? What kind of information have they left out Mm. as well? And how did people navigate that? Um, Just briefly, because part of my master's thesis was looking at Jamaicans who'd migrated to the US at the very beginning of the 20th century. And I saw, this was through, again, came through family research, but I saw these ships manifests where people had written down what their relationship was to each other. So brother, sister, grandmother, so Mm. and so. Through ancestry, I got in touch with the descendants of those people living in the US. And they told me that that wasn't true. They fabricated some of those relationships in order to get their passage. So where they said we're brother and sister, they were actually cousins. Right. Once they got to the US, because Jamaican families can be quite complicated. (laughs) 
Children are sometimes shared. So mm-hmm. someone's raising a child, but they're not actually the mother. They're the right. auntie or they're the mm-hmm. cousin or the son. son. Once they all got to the US, went to their respective households and became who they were supposed to be again. So yeah, don't always think about why people may have said, why have written what they wrote. And the same mm-hmm. when you're looking at censuses, because I traced one family through how they were recorded in Jamaica, how they were recorded on the ship and when they arrived in the US and then the census and you get different information. Wow, really? And then speaking to the people. So you have to piece it all together because history is a puzzle. And there's not necessarily only one, mm. but there definitely isn't one story. It's it's always slanted. There's no such thing as objectivity. Okay. That's really interesting. It's I suppose it kind of goes to this idea of decolonizing our knowledge and acknowledging that a lot of written records well history is written by the winners isn't it so Mm. I guess we have to go to non-written forms of history to get the true story um so for people who are looking to go down a similar path that you have gone down although it's not (laughs) it doesn't necessarily have one right track Mm. what kind of practical recommendations would you make or what advice would you offer to people who hear this and think I want to do something this similar. This kind of work. Yeah. Well, so I was having a conversation today actually was in, uh, at a museum um, with people that were saying it, it, it's kind of a generational thing. They were of the opinion that if you're of my generation, it was a lot easier to mm. get into the sector. Um, now everything seems to be a bit more separated. If you want to be a curator, you have to do yeah. an MA in, in curation. If you want to be a, you know, whatever else, it's all very kind of segmented. Mm. Um, so to an extent that's true, but on the other hand, what we also found out was through our conversation was that if you're working maybe in a smaller organization and you present yourself as someone who's enthusiastic and can do a bit of this and mm. do a bit of that, when they're hiring, they may well hire you rather than going to somebody outside or even if they don't hire you the experience that you've got in a smaller organization is going to be across those rigid lines so Mm. curation archives um, learning public history family engagement if you can get a touch of all of that experience then and and to strengthen your cv in Mm. that way that that can really help okay and in terms of studying um or studying an education the educational path that you went down would you say that things like a PhD and a master's are intrinsic to being um, looked to as like a credible kind of person to carry out this type of work? Yes, but I wouldn't say exclusive. I wouldn't advise Mm. everyone. I don't think everyone has to do a PhD or even a master's. But what I do think from my personal experience was that once I did that master's, because my master's wasn't in history, it was in historical research. Mm. Historical research means they're giving you the tools to be able to do that historical inquiry, teaching you about things we'd never thought about, like even things about questioning the texts, who wrote it, why, what kind of, what's your research methodology going to Mm. be, what kind of analysis are you going to use, how are you going to look at these texts. I think it's really important that for for, for black people who are interested in history, at least to go through that. Whether Mm. you then want to chuck it out the window afterwards is fine. But I am wary. Sometimes I find from our communities there's a there's a because there's a high level of emotion. This is our history. This is not something yeah. objective. But then I see people making responses to history that I would sometimes want to say, you know, that's not quite right. In mm. the sense that I guess almost like we it's, there's wish a lot of wishful thinking in it. We wish things to be a certain way, so we project onto things what mm. we want to see. I particularly see that with Africa. From the diaspora, people projecting onto Africa what they think Africa represents to them. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a, definitely a benefit in going through these formal 
systems of learning. And yes, one, it helps you to be more credible, but even it helps you personally in your own inquiry, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. How do you find that? um, So having studied in the UK, we're obviously studying under these colonial systems and where getting knowledge from these knowledge banks Mm. that were created um, by a system that was designed to oppress black people. So how do you kind of toe the line of getting those tools, but then applying them to um, learn about your own history and the history of black people, black British people, while also ensuring that you're not implementing the same kind of colonial frameworks that that the system was built upon? I think that's an important point you made. And I think that might be the reason why a lot of people will shy away from it Mm. and think, well, what does it mean that you're a trained historian? You're trained in what colonial methods? However, I think it it depends what your intention is to begin with. Um, My intention was always to be interrogating the stories of Caribbean peoples. I was looking in particular at Jamaica and Barbados in the post-emancipation period. Mm. So though I started off at the National Archives, and that is very much top-down, it's this is the, the records of the administration, right. I knew that once I'd finished looking at all of that, I was off to Jamaica and Barbados, to their archives, where I was hopefully going to find out other stories. And what I did discover is, I mean, yeah, even the colonial archives are going to be the same, because mm. at the end of the day, it was the British who were there making these archives with the same kind yeah. of information. But you can read between the lines. You will find stories there which will take you in a different direction. Mm. So, for example, in Barbados, I found letters written by poor women to the local authority seeking aid for themselves and for their children. Now, these are women that everybody would say, well, black women, there was not high literacy. Mm. wouldn't be able to write these letters. Someone else must have written it for them. But no, I looked at these letters. I know they wrote them. So that, again, opened up a a different area of inquiry to Mm. kind of challenge the idea that there's mass illiteracy or, Mm. you know, or that it's it's been for people to give charity to these poor black women Mm. rather than them. And it's not just that they asked for charity. They were asking for relief in very clever ways, based on their knowledge of the system and what they could get Mm. based on who they were. So, for example, you'll have the married woman who'll be claiming the fact that she's married, she's respectable, she's a good Christian woman, and therefore that's the reason you should help her. You might have another woman who's a single mother. She's not going to make that same kind of emotional appeal because she Mm. knows they'll just say, well, that's too bad. Your child is your burden, that's illegitimate, whatever. So they kind of express it in different language. So you can tell Mm. that these people knew what they were doing. They're not just victims of a system. Mm. And from that, then, you can then go back to the records of the families and where they lived. You can even go and find their descendants and hear the stories of what they had to say and learn more about the areas that they came from. So mm. you can use the, the the official records as a springboard. Mm. And that will, and that also took me to different institutions from, say, the archives in Jamaica. It took me to the, um, the National Library. It took right. me to the Catholic archives. I ended up interviewing a nun who was 99 <laughs> years old wow. the day I interviewed her. But she just devoted her life to education wow. in, in, in Jamaica. So... Again, it all just interconnects. I think mm. if you ignore one aspect of history because it's colonial or it's from the aggressor right. or so-and-so, then because our, our histories are so enmeshed with that, there was no way of separating yourself from mm. that colonial system back then. So you have to accept it and 
yeah work around work it. around <laughs> it work with it work through it yeah right. and in your in your research you obviously traveled to Jamaica and Barbados so what what importance does travel and actually going to the homeland of these stories have in accurately researching history do you think it depends. I mean, the research I was doing, because it was all like long ago, people mm-hmm. who, are, who are long dead, it, it wasn't necessarily that being there enabled me to do it better because it, it's, yes, the material was in the archives there, but it could have been anywhere. Right. What I found for me, particularly in Jamaica, was um, once I got my relatives to stop ferrying me around from place to place, <laughs> worrying that I was going to be mugged or, or kidnapped <laughs> or whatever, once they let me get on with it um, and just... I found then I'm going to places where the, the people I'm researching would have gone. I'm right. walking the same streets they would have walked along. And then when I was in Barbados, I remember it was quite funny. It wasn't funny at the time. I'd actually left my bank card behind in Jamaica. <laughs> so I had some that tiny amount of money. And I remember how, at one point I was researching about how you made food stretch. Like you might make have a little bit of salt fish and you mix it with the cornmeal and you're trying to feed 10, mm. 20 people with it. And I remember thinking, I'm, I've, I'm never going to experience that, but here I am with my tiny amount of money. Rather than buy a chocolate bar, I'm going to buy a tin of condensed milk and have a teaspoon of it every day to get, that's my dessert. Mm. And I'm going to think about what tin foods I can buy. And it just made me feel humbled because I said to my parents, you, you cannot write a history of a people from an air-conditioned vehicle. Mm-hmm. I said they had to just, I had to just walk. The st- that was just for me. I had right. to feel like I was walking in the streets among the people mm. and making my own way. Wow. Do you feel like that was quite a grounding experience for you personally? How did that, how did that impact the, the commitment you had to the work that you were doing at the time? It was definitely grounding for me because it collapsed that distance. Because I yeah. think... You realize that, that Caribbean societies are also highly stratified and, mm. and, and class ridden. And so that was something I was able only in a small way to kind of put aside mm. and just taking the buses, walking, doing things that ordinary people were doing. But I don't flatter myself that I have any real experience of what it would be like to have to do that right. all the time. And I think as a historian, you have to you have to acknowledge your privilege mm. as well. And it's privilege because I studied here mm-hmm. in, in a, and I've, I've had those opportunities of school and university and so on, which a lot of people haven't. So I'm not saying I'm even best placed to do these histories, but it is my history as well. And that's why I'm, I'm passionate about it. It's, it's, mm. I was able to marry academic interest to personal history as well so and that's a blessing mm, to be able to do it it is it is yeah and to add you did your was it your phd that you did at burbeck that was my master's, master's. in historical research a phd was right. newcastle and the national archives right so you did your master's at the same university that marcus garvey went to probably what 90 years prior so that must have been quite a full circle moment for you as well do you know it's something i wouldn't have known at the time really? i didn't think of it at the time Right. At all. There's so many things like that. And even Newcastle University, because mm. um, Martin Luther King has an honorary doctorate. Does he? From there, and when I went for my graduation, we made sh- we saw his statue, we made sure to photograph next oh. to the statue. <laughs> but these are the histories. It was like I found those things out afterwards, mm. when I was, because I wasn't even interrogating those histories at the time. I was still in that process of discovering that oh, those yeah. were the histories mm. I wanted to interrogate. Interesting. And with the going back to what you were speaking about earlier, this kind of confirmation bias that we might have when learning about a history um, 
an ancestral history, African history, African diasporic history, I think that there can tend to be a bit of romanticization when we speak about Africa and the African diaspora and its history. So where do you think the line is with um, highlighting the good, the forgotten good and the forgotten power um, that is in those histories, but also kind of maintaining a objective view of, of what those histories are? I think particularly for people from the diaspora, maybe from Caribbean backgrounds, do mm. tend to have a view of Africa that can be, you said it, it's, oh, well, I don't know what the word is. I think Rose-colored glasses, maybe. It's rose-colored glasses, and it also can be somewhat pejorative. Mm. Um, it's like people see in it what they want to see in it. I, I would always advise people, if you have the opportunity to travel, travel mm. um, go to different parts of Africa as well not just the parts where you think your ancestors came from and don't just stay in West Africa mm. go all over Africa and Asia as well because at the end of the day these divi- these continental divisions are modern colonial mm-hmm. constructs Asia and Africa are literally the same landmass as right. is Europe as mm. well so I think if we, we need to kind of again because Our understanding of race is based on what race means to us in this country Mm -hmm. and in the US and in Europe. Mm. But when you go to African countries and Asian countries, race doesn't mean the same thing. You can't be always like saying, well, where are the black people? Oh, there they are. People don't know what you mean. You Mm. can't like go to, say, Tanzania and say, where are the black people or who are the real? (laughs) They're like, what do you mean? We don't identify as the black people. We are different nations Mm. of people. And the same, you you get dark-skinned people across, say, the Middle East and that with the same features as us, but they would use different words for themselves. Mm. So that, I would say, I think there needs to be more of a direct knowledge of of what those countries actually are, not just what we think they are. I think because it's a very painful history as well, it it can be really hard to know how to engage with it beyond just knowing here's the name of a person. Um, And maybe it was within the the slavery period Mm. as well. But... um, I think I, I, after a while, the more that you engage with the history, the, the less I think it's frightening at the beginning mm. because you just don't want to, to traumatize yourself and you don't want to kind of, in a way, trivialize the stories of these people. Mm. Particularly, I find for me, if I'm doing it for the sake of a master's thesis, right. I don't want to be like using these people's names who went through this terrible trauma just yeah. for the sake of, a, of, a, of class, my advancement yeah. then. So I guess it's just, I think so long as we're aware of these questions and mm. you can even like, if you're doing something academic, you can indicate an awareness of this within your work. That's mm. perfectly fine because no one expects a historian not to come with some inherent biases or assumptions or feelings about a particular mm. thing. Um, I think, I, I, I guess I haven't really answered the question because I haven't really, I'm still on that journey, I think. <laughs> I don't think there's and one right answer, no, to be honest. And particularly with the histories of Barbados, I think the 19th mm. century Barbados, the histories are appalling and very, very upsetting. Mm. Um the levels of poverty and, of and neglect and it was it's just heartbreaking. Mm. Um, and I'm not Bayesian. So I think if somebody was, it, it's even more upsetting. But as I always say, when I think about those painful histories mm. and the history of the slave trade, I say, well, our ancestors survived because mm-hmm. they must have survived Otherwise because we're be here. here. Exactly. And so therefore everything we do mm. is because of them and what they went through and, and what they managed mm. to survive. And that's powerful it's a big responsibility but it also gives a sense of relief as well Mm. to say you know I'm here for a purpose Mm. yeah I think it definitely gives a sense of purpose and 
self-assurance, I suppose, knowing that you're the product of a lot of struggle and your ancestors still managed to make it out alive and in turn you're here also making it out alive. Um, going to that kind of topic of self-assurance and self-doubt that we might find, especially working in a country like the UK, which as much as black people are taking up a lot more space here than they used to, um, and there's more recognition of us as a community in this country, it can definitely be a disconnected experience working and living on a land that isn't necessarily um, that we don't have much connection to. So how have you remained self-assured and kind of overcome self-doubt throughout your career? And imposter syndrome mm. as well, which is a big one, I'm I sure. I don't think one ever does. Mm. And I've heard this said that it's more of, of women than men. I don't know. Um, that women are more likely to have imposter syndrome. And I guess that's to do with all kinds of structures in society. Mm. Um I think what I've had to do is to accept that what the, the, the situation we're in now and the complicated relationship we have with the country of our birth, mm. our nationality, our ancestry, is just, it is what it is. Mm. It's who we are. And I think even if you go back to, say, the colonial Caribbean, it, it was the same. They would have had, well, not the same, but they would have had those kind of struggles as well. How do you fit into yeah. society? How do you navigate this society? I know less about how it was experience on the African continent. But I don't think as a person of African descent, necessarily you can ever be in a space where you feel that that you totally belong mm. in that space. Um, there's always going to be, especially once you start going back into the history, yeah. there's always going to be questions about it. So I mm. think you just, for me, I just accept I am this person, mm. I am this product of so many different things. I don't have to fit into one category. I don't know if anybody ever really does. Mm. I think just accept your difference and try to find the, the people that will respect you for it mm. and, and want that. So I find that that's the case a lot with organizations might actually reach out to you because they see you embody something right. that they don't, that, that can be work well for their organization. Mm. You know, it might be that they're using you, I don't know, but you can be using <laughs> them as well. Um, and I think, again, here at BCA, we, we, I don't struggle with all the, those questions mm. nearly as much because we, there's that automatic understanding right. when we come here of who we are and mm. where we've come from. We don't have to go through that kind of initial stage of proving yourself or proving you need to be mm -hmm. in that space. And I think for me, again, as a black Muslim woman, I felt it more strongly as a Muslim woman than as right. a black woman. I think that's because when people see you in a hijab, mm -hmm they always think you must have just come to the country or you must be a student. Mm. You're never seen as someone who would actually be teaching others. Yeah. Even when you speak and the <laughs> words that come out of your mouth, it's almost like they don't hear the words mm -hmm. that come out of your mouth. There have been times where I've introduced myself to somebody and they've still said, I introduced myself to a lady once and I've come here to offer, I'm, I'm running a course for some of your parents. I'm come to meet with so-and-so. Mm. And she straight away said, oh, let me find out who's running that course and look behind me to the white woman who was standing in the queue. And I said, she said, oh, so are you running the course? I said, no, I just, and do you know what? <laughs> because it had happened before, going to this new place, I had mm. put on a suit mm. and I wore heels mm. and I practiced what I was going to say. And I put on my best public school accent. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't have been clearer as a friend said, she was, wasn't hearing you. She was just looking at you. She yeah. didn't hear the words that came mm -hmm. out of your mouth at all. And I think that's that's still an issue. And it's still an issue within black spaces as well. Yeah, um, yeah I don't automatically go into a, a, a black space and necessarily feel that 
these are my kindred. I have mm. to wait and see how are they going to react to me first? Mm-hmm. Are they going to see me as one of them right. or not? Mm-hmm. Um, usually when they say, oh, you're Jamaican, it's, it's all changes. But I mean, had I been Eritrean, would what, would that make exactly. a difference? Don't know. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of work to do there to do to do there as well. And I think, particularly as we look a lot to Africa, a lot of Africa has different religions. Mm. Um, people look to places like Mali and Mauritania. Yeah. These places are largely Muslim. There's mm-hmm. Christian as well. Mm-hmm. But again, I find a lot of people are just looking to find what they consider to be the authentic African religion, mm-hmm. which has to be something to do with ancestors or something. And I say that's not again. That's Coming back to what we were saying earlier about projecting onto Africa mm. what you want to see in Africa. And Africa is that, but it's also got the oldest church in the world. Right. The Coptic church, mm-hmm. the Ethiopian church. Mm. You know, these things are as African as, as other things. Mm. That's very interesting because we were speaking earlier about how, how Islamophobia isn't necessarily seen as the same struggle that, that race has in this country. Um, and Muslims have been in Africa since what 800 AD but it is still very much seen as a new a new religion earlier than that earlier than that there you go and so 500. it's interesting that you feel now wearing hijab that people still see you as a newcomer to this country because it kind of encapsulates how they how they perceive Islam in its relation to Africa and the Caribbean um when it is a very old relation that's a there's a very old relationship there um I think we have to wrap up soon, but I could keep going on this conversation forever. Um, but what is something that you would tell your younger self, knowing now where you've got where where you've gotten to, all of the things that you've achieved, and all of the obstacles that you've managed to overcome? What is something that you would tell your younger self, or anyone else who might be in the position that your younger self was in a few years ago, starting out in this in this industry in this career? I'd have to say, don't be frightened. I was easily frightened when I was young, <laughs> in the sense that. As I said earlier, that when I came up against discrimination or bullying, Mm. my instinct was always to flee, Mm. just leave and go and do something else. Whereas I would want to say to my younger self, and again, it's all about hindsight. And you always say to that, I should have said this, I should have done that. (laughs) Partly, again, it's because there wasn't legislation in place to enable me to do those Mm. things. So I'd say to anybody, I'd say to my younger self, just stand your ground and stand your ground more strongly and push through Mm. with your career the way you want to. But then maybe there comes a time as well where you have to say, right, this isn't, it's not that this isn't the career for me, but this particular organization, this particular Mm. way I'm going about it is not going to work at this time. So don't give up on it, but maybe just take a different route. Just Mm. go around, more roundabout route with it. I don't know if that's helpful to anyone, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, I think it definitely does. It's about kind of standing in your truth and not compromising your identity for the sake of a job or a uh, going down the career path that you kind of predict for yourself. And I suppose just going with the flow to an extent, hmm. right? Well, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a very interesting conversation. And I think that anyone who listens to it will definitely take away a lot from it, whether it's to go down this career path or just to learn more about black history, which is something that applies to everyone, whether you're black or not. Um, So thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the How Did I Get Here podcast. Our episodes are released on the third Wednesday of each month, so make sure to tune in and don't forget to follow us at BCA Heritage on all social media platforms for information on what we have on. If you liked our introduction and want to learn more, come visit our archives. Our reading room is open Wednesday to Friday and the first Saturday of every month. Check out the bottom of our website for the opening times and pay us a visit here in Brixton. And remember... 
Culture is resilience. Diversity is resilience. Keep going and don't stop until you get there.